0: We are uh, in Hebrews chapter seven, studying uh, this argument for the priesthood of Jesus Christ. He is both king and priest. And let me, as we have done, read from Hebrews chapter, the, the text of our lesson today from Hebrews 7, 11 to 28. Uh, I'll be reading from the New King James, which is the, the translation text of our, of our Bible study. Here we go. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law for he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man was officiated no man has officiated at the altar for it is evident that our lord arose from judah of which tribe moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood and yet and it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of melchizedek there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, You are a priesthood forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope, through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save the uttermost, those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners and has become higher than the heavens who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's for this he did once for all when he offered up himself for the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. Okay, so uh, this is our, our our text today, about seventeen verses. And and as we get into this, it uh, there's a few things I, I wanted to touch on um, about this section of, of Scripture. Uh, this these this section of Scripture is you know, like most of the arguments in the book of Hebrews is built off several significant passages from the Psalms. Uh, earlier in the book, uh, Psalm 95 is used and it is used to, to make an argument uh, on behalf of the superior superiority of Christ um, in, in, in Hebrews chapter 3. Psalm 95 is used uh, to encourage the, the Hebrew Christians, uh, not to walk away from the faith with an unbelieving heart and and miss out on the eternal rest, the eternal Sabbath that comes from God. And, and uh, he uses Psalm 95, the Hebrew writer, uh, the Hebrews writer uses Psalm 95 as the basis for this encouragement. Uh, throughout the Hebrews, the Psalms are an important part of how he thinks and and how God had embedded anticipation of the coming Christ and and how it applies now in a very fresh way, uh, not just uh, to uh, make a strong artificial. Uh, break from Judaism, but instead to show the continuity, the connection from the law of Moses to the coming of Christ. So you know sometimes the hardest page in the Bible is that that white page between the Old Testament and the New Testament that says New Testament And we, we sometimes feel there's such an abrupt change, but as the writer of Hebrews would argue, uh, these these uh, transitions, they're built into the Old Testament system. They're built into the Bible of the Hebrews. And, and it's important then to pull from that those transitional or those passages that anticipate this transition. Uh, Galatians would be a great book if you want to do some reading this week. Galatians would be a good book to read, to, to see... How the, the Apostle Paul makes this argument that the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, as you know uh, the Jews would call it probably today, uh, the, the, the Torah or the Tanakh, um, th- that that set of inspired books from God, uh, we would argue, point toward the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so we're going to get into our text now and what I want to do also is is just read uh read from Psalm uh 104 which is the the basis of the the text and the argument that that the Hebrews writer is making here in Hebrews chapter 7. Now, you, you're going to find that Psalm 110 is more familiar to you than you might have anticipated. You may have not even known there's 110. There's actually 149 Psalms uh, or 50 Psalms. And, um, but uh, listen to this, Psalm 110. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Uh, Just to get a sense, or at least where I'm going with this and where I think the, the writer to the Hebrews is going with this, this psalm is sometimes, at least in modern scholarship, considered to be a royal psalm, a psalm that, Potentially, was read during the monarchy, and that is during the time of David, and and after him, uh, when a king would be made, and so in their sort of enthronement ceremony, you would get this psalm perhaps read. This is speculation as to its application in Israel. However, when David is writing the Psalms, he's under the inspiration of God. Uh, Earlier when Psalm 95 is, is quoted in the the book of Hebrews, the the writer says, the Holy Spirit says, and David himself has said, the, the spirit of the Lord was upon me and his word was upon my tongue. And so being a, a Psalm of David, and I think we have no reason to question that, uh, there was something to be said that God, through him is uttering things that maybe David didn't always appreciate in terms of the long view of being applied to the coming Messiah, the coming Christ or the coming anointed one, who would be superior in every way to a traditional uh, you know king of the Davidic line of David, right, of the household of David. And in fact, in the days of Jesus, these passages would become pretty fundamental to some of the questioning Jesus would give. Uh, Verse one, uh, which is referenced in the book of Hebrews, uh, a good one, two, three, four, five, six times. Uh, verse one, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus used this passage to ask um about the Christ, what people thought uh the, who the who the Christ was if he was a son of David, therefore a descendant and therefore inferior, giving the the traditional uh maybe Eastern point of view that your ancestors are always greater than you. Uh, but if if the Christ, the coming Messiah, was less than David, why did David say, "The Lord"? This is the divine name, the Lord, you know, Jehovah or Yahweh or however you might be accustomed to um, hearing that word. Um, the Lord says to my Lord, Adonai, which is a title of of respect and and also given. A divine sense, uh, David. Jesus says, considering that God is speaking to my Lord, how did David? How was David greater than the one that David calls my Lord? And so, this psalm, by that implication of Jesus, is an argument that the coming Christ would be greater than his ancestor David. That. He, since David recognized the, the, the lordship of the coming king, then it would be, uh, he must be greater. But when you get down to verse four, which is really the foundation of the argument that we're looking at in, in just a moment here, uh, notice the, in verse four, the, if you, you have the screen here, you'll see that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Uh, This again is a pretty pretty powerful language. God is is making an oath and he is making this oath uh, by his very nature and based on his insight and wisdom. And this oath is making a proclamation regarding a king. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It is therefore argued that um the king in israel by the oath in this passage was both king and priest that it his the priest the priesthood and the kingship given to the king of israel had, was built in by this oath david is acknowledging that he has a kind of priesthood. It's a priesthood that's different from that of the Levites. And this is exactly the kind of argument that the writer to the Hebrews is going to make. That as king he has connection to God and intercedes for his people. As priest um, he also has in a more pronounced obvious way through the sacrifices a a relationship with God that way and intercedes for his people. Jesus, as a descendant of David and therefore descendant of this promise and this oath of God, uh, is therefore a priest as well as a king. He has a throne that is at the right hand of God and God will make all the enemies his footstool um, and he is also a priest. So Psalm one ten is massively important because it speaks to the kingship and priesthood of the Davidic family by an oath, not by the Book of Hebrews. So very early on in the in in the history of Israel, there was this embedded oath and promise. Okay, so. Excuse me, so we get into um, some things here as we further plow through the book of Hebrews. this continues the the argument that Jesus is superior uh, and and this is not a, an argument of arrogance, it's a comparative argument. Uh, remember that there are some Jewish Christians. Who are probably returning to what they've always known, and that the faith—the faith, the faith itself—was probably a little hard for. Uh, <clears throat> it was probably hard for for the for the for the Jews to to leave. They were they were probably struggling with. We don't have a sacrificial system and we need that comfort to know that we will always have our sins forgiven and how is this death of Jesus supposed to handle the 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 atoning for sin and so in the the book of Hebrews then it's imperative that we understand that Jesus and his mission and character and even what he accomplishes fundamentally makes the, the dependency on that sacrificial system uh, no longer necessary. And so the main argument at play here then comes from Psalm 110, that Jesus is a king priest like Melchizedek. If you go to Genesis 14, you run into the narrative of Abraham uh, meaning uh, Melchizedek. Uh, a, a name which um, you might be interested to know. Um, his name means uh, King of Righteousness, Melchizedek. Uh, Melik is the Hebrew word for king, uh, and then is would be uh, the word for righteous. Um, and he is a king of righteousness. That's the meaning behind his name. And he is also a king of Salem, which most people think is Jerusalem before it becomes an Israelite city. Um, It's probably at that point a Jebusite city. Um, and, And Melchizedek is from a city of peace, and he is a king of righteousness he is a king of a city of peace and he is a king of his name is king of righteousness and he is a priest that receives a tithe from abraham and blesses abraham this becomes a massively important argument uh, in the previous section of hebrews that this shows that Abraham submitted to Melchizedek. And if Abraham, as the ancestor, is the great one, the great champion of faith, the great champion of obedience, and if Abraham submits to Melchizedek, king of the of Most High God, um, then why not his descendants submit to a king like Melchizedek? So Melchizedek, Melchizedek becomes this king priest prototype and Abraham submits. And then the art, the argument from Hebrews is in fact, even Levi, who was in the loins of his father, Abraham, that is to say he had not been born yet. Uh, and this is sort of a, a common uh, argument made in scripture of proxy, you know, um, uh, Levi was, is from the lineage of Abraham and therefore he is sort of included in whatever Abraham does. And this sort of sometimes says our identity is wrapped up into history and biography. The history of my family shapes my identity and my personal biography shapes my identity. Well, our history, Israelite history is often shaped by unique figures like Abraham. So if Abraham submitted to Melchizedek, then through proxy, so did Levi, who is the basis of the the priesthood. Um, And so Melchizedek becomes a massively important character here, uh, figure, and this all builds towards that this oath was given to the king, Psalm 110, built on this king-priest prototype, Melchizedek. And as a result, another point here is the superiority of the sacrifice of Jesus is seen in that the Levitical system required a perpetual sacrificial system, whereas the sacrifice of Jesus was done once. And so this becomes another leg of the argument. So let's get back into our text. Um, any, uh, any comments or uh, questions at this time? See. Anyone out there? <laughs> okay. <clears throat> All right, so <clears throat> in Hebrews 11 to 19, which is the first section of our study, uh, you have uh, this title of Christ our High Priest. Uh, and I'm following the outline of our study book. Uh, I, I may go in different directions, but I'm going to follow the outline here. Uh, but basically, when we read verses 11 to 19, and we did all that already at the beginning of our, our study today, when you read that, what you end up seeing here is is an argument that really um, makes the case that um, the Levitical system had a, a weakness uh, in that it could not provide perfection. It could not provide completeness. It it was an ongoing system. Therefore, the problems were ongoing. And in verse 11 makes that point rather strongly in that uh, in that what you have is if you could be made perfect, then you would have done it through the Levitical system. But that's simply not the case. In fact, the, the New Testament, that's one of the strongest arguments about the Old Testament that you get from the New. It wasn't that it was wrong, and it, it's not that it was not God's word, but it had built-in limitations. That is the issue with the Old Testament system as it is. Yes, you could have sins forgiven. Yes, but that required a continual sacrificial system which required a continual um, a priesthood. And that priesthood required priests, uh, every generation to, to transition in and out. Uh, and while you might say, well, that seems like a pretty good system. Uh, what if you could have a better system? What if the system that could be perfect was a king priest, Who only had to offer one sacrifice to account for all sins, not just once a year, but for all time. What if you could have a priest that didn't go into a earthly structure, but could go to the heavenly domain and and apply that sacrifice there permanently? Um, What about a priest that? knows human weakness, though is without sin. What about those sorts of things, right? So as Romans 8, one might say, uh, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, right? But then he goes on and says, for what the law could not do in that it was weak according to the flesh. And this is the issue that we see throughout the New Testament. And Interestingly enough, remember all the predominantly the predominant ethnicity of first century Christians, as far as we can tell, were Jewish. So these are Jewish people making this argument that the Old Law, the Hebrew system, had limits. And um, I only bring that up because this is not an anti-Semitic argument. This is not a a. Uh, an argument built on a hatred of of Jews. This is um, the Hebrews, we would argue from the inspiration of God, seeing the limits of that system. And so this limitation is built then on the fact that the priesthood uh, of Aaron is, is limited. And even though you were called uh, by the Scripture to become a priest after that order, the priesthood of Jesus is built on the oath that he would be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So you have this, you have this, um, this contrast. You have this contrast of Scripture, right? The Levitical system, and then you have the oath of God that the king was a priest also. And, and, and it, once that king priest uh, is sort of brought into the main view of what God is doing in this world, things are gonna have to change. This is the consequence of Jesus being both king and priest. The priesthood has to change and the law therefore has to change. And therefore, the new a new era is now in place, and so for the Hebrew Christians that are feeling the, the tension of leaving, he the writer of Hebrews is trying to bring them back by saying, "No, what you're feeling is is understandable, but Scripture actually has this already embedded within it." It's just now time for us to really believe what God is doing and stick to it. Okay. So. So in summary, then the, the Levitical system was not perfect because it had limits. Romans one, Romans eight, verse one to three. Uh, And, you know, you look at Galatians 3, uh, but here the writer of Hebrews makes it pretty clear that there was a need for a law, a new law. The priesthood of Jesus requires a different law. And this, again, is built off the implication of the oath argument from Psalm 110. I have sworn with an oath and I will not change my mind. Interestingly enough, it's the same Hebrew word where in Genesis chapter 6, God repents uh, at, because of the, the wickedness of humanity and he's sorry that he ever made humans and then he brings forth the, the punishment of the flood. It's that same Hebrew word here, but now instead of saying, it, I I repent for making humanity, this is now in a positive sense. I will not repent. I will not back down. I will not change my mind regarding this oath to the king of a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. So that must have application and must have implication for the coming Christ, the the descendant of David, uh, who is uh, built off a promise in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. So then Jesus then fulfills the Melchizedek king-priest forever position uh, and that, that no king or priest before him or after him could. And part of that has to do, and is built off his life, his character, and the nature of his sacrifice. His life um, in that he is uh, both of the the descendant of David, Uh, you can look at Romans chapter 1 verses 1 to 4, that he is of the flesh of the household of David. But he's also a priest because of that oath in Psalm 110 as a as a as a king in the order of David um, he has that access to that oath of God, and his character he is sinless, and his sacrifice was singular and so the law had a weakness, but therefore it's important to realize then that Christ offers then a stronger promise of hope, and through that we have access to draw near to God, another important Hebrew phrase uh, idiom for fellowship with God. And so um, as this argument moves forward then, verses 20 to 25, a smaller chunk for us to summarize here, uh, but if you look at here, uh, look at this text on our screen or if you're reading in your Bible, verses 20 to 25, uh, the, the argument here is again, Um, the priest was not made a priest through oath, but the priest was made a priest through law. And it is Jesus who was made a priest by an oath. God's oath, God's word, and his promise to David. And in this then we see that even though there was scripture, okay, even though there was scripture given to Israel, You know, we can look at the 39 books of the Old Testament um, or if you look at it from another point of view, from maybe the Hebrew point of view, you have 22 books. But if you look at the 39 books of the Old Testament, uh, you might think that that's all God ever said. However, when you read the Psalms or you read God interacting with David, we're not just reading uh, a story. Many times we're reading when God implants additional promises to the scriptures that he has given for all people. We're reading God give oaths. Like, again, I'll, I'll reference it again. 2 Samuel chapter seven. God promised to David an eternal throne. That was not a part of uh, the, the you know, the commandments in Deuteronomy or or anything like that. So there was some wiggle room for God to to add oaths and promises that he would swear by. Like when when Solomon finally became king and God said, tell me what you want and I will grant it. And he gives him wisdom because Solomon asked for wisdom. Uh, That is an oath that God enters into and provides this wisdom to Solomon. And so uh, we see that there was scripture but at the same time, God interacted and provided these additional blessings to the house of David. And, and this becomes the foundation for Mel- the king-priest argument again. And it might, may sound like a broken record here, but, but it's really important to catch that. Remember, the Lord had sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. And so this implies then that if the priesthood changes, the covenant has to change or the law has to change. And and it is the presence of Jesus who has now finally fulfilled the king-priest promise oath that sort of brings all this into reality. So the limit again is not just the oath, but there was many, many priests, but Jesus has a unchangeable priesthood, meaning no one will come after him. Uh, He is a priest forever. And he therefore can make intercessions for his people. And and that should have been able to, to provide some calm. In other words, where do we get our sacrifices done? Jesus did that. Well, where do we get our priesthood? Jesus is that priest. But he's, he's not of Levi. He's of Judah. Yes, David, who is of, of Judah, made an argument from his relationship with God that he would be king and priest. Jesus now fully fulfills that, that oath. And God is following through. And the requirements then mean a new covenant, a new law. This is, again, why we do not uh, go backward to the law for our guidance uh, for uh, specific worship acts, though we might get the language and though we might get the substance of what worship is all about. uh, It's important to realize that we move forward here through this new priest, uh, new priesthood, new sacrifice. Our relationship is deeper, and more powerful, more permanent, or permanent at at that. So this hope is built on the changeless oath argument from Psalm 110, verse 4. The Levitical priesthood uh, was never given this oath, uh, and therefore Jesus becomes the guarantor uh, of a better covenant, because he is king and priest, whereas and therefore is the fulfillment of this promise to David. And then the limit of the priest was also seen in the contrast of many versus the one. So Jesus is the one, and, and that also makes an important case. He is the new high priest. And as we conclude our section here, verses 26 to 28, Um <clears throat> What we see here is, is again, this sort of um, summary argument. Verses 26 to 28 seems to be more of a summary argument, Uh, and it really is built on his character and and, and the nature of his sacrifice. Um, For such a high priest was fitting for us. Now notice these words to describe Jesus, his character. He is holy, harmless, undefiled separate or consecrated from sinners and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily to offer up sacrifices. Jesus doesn't need sacrifices. He is perfect. He is sinless. That becomes a massively big contrast. Every priest is required to sacrifice for themselves. And Jesus, on the other hand, is not like those priests. So, if you're really trying to get into the frame of mind of, of a first century Jew who has accepted that, that God has fulfilled his promises and that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, then one of your issues is going to be, how do I live apart from that system? Well, the system has changed, but it has, be, has become better and firmer because Jesus is not just priest, he is king priest. He is a Melchizedek king priest. He is also a, able to understand the human condition because he lived as a human. He's, he suffered and but submitted himself to the will of God, even facing temptation. Um, he is now in heaven, the right hand of God, and he has offered up that one sacrifice with full access to the holy of holies, and this makes him uh, able to be the perfect son who has perfected us forever through his his sacrifice and through his work. So, as we conclude here, um, beyond the argument of of uh, oath, Psalm one ten. Verse four, this oath. And beyond the weakness of the law. uh, Beyond the weakness of the law, uh, which was never intended to be a permanent law in that sense. Beyond the weakness of the Levites in that no Levite could be priest forever because Levites are humans and humans die. So you always need a new priest. Uh, Jesus, on the other hand, did die, rose again, and is eternal in the heavens, and was God in the flesh, and was God before he became in the flesh. And then you have the weakness of the sacrifice. The sacrifice being, he sacrificed his life once, and the priesthood of the Levites needed daily, morning, evening, annual, special events, special sins all sorts of things, sacrifices. With Jesus, you don't need that. As a result, you get a better hope that it's not built on my ability to give God the best animal sacrifice, but my relationship with God is built on Him giving us a tremendously unmatchable sacrifice. And that it's become a permanent offering from God's part, from Jesus' part. And we don't have to worry about that anymore. Uh, He is holy. He is sinless. And therefore, has no need to intercede for himself. And as a a result, we see then that our new system is perfected through the Son forever. Uh, Incidentally, that word forever, at the end of that passage... Um, in, in uh, verse 28, is the same. He's basically quoting the oath of forever. It's the same Hebrew phrase. Uh, it's the same, excuse me, it's the same Greek phrase uh, used throughout that passage. So every time in this section you read the word forever, uh, if you write in your Bibles, I would encourage you to circle forever. In uh, chapter seven, verse 17, you are a priest forever. And then every time you see it in the in chapter seven, draw a line to it. And that way you'll notice that the, the writer to the Hebrews is quoting that line every time. So Hebrews 110, excuse me, Psalms 110, massively important for understanding that passage in chapter 7. Okay, so thank you so much. I want to thank our friends on, on Facebook Live. I want to thank my brothers and sisters at Highland. Who've joined us in our Zoom class? I uh, Want to thank everyone who is with us today. If you have questions about what we studied today, I want to invite you to message us. Uh, if you're not on Facebook, or if you're on Facebook and you haven't liked our page, do so after you you finish this uh, live session, and then we can you can get updates of all that we're doing. Uh, we're going to have a message at eleven o'clock, and then at three o'clock we'll have another message by our minister Brandon and. And, um, and as a result, uh, we'll conclude our day there. All our audio and all our messages will be recorded. Uh, and if the quality is good, we'll repost it so you can benefit from it. And uh, again, thank you so much for joining us on Facebook Live. We'll see you later. Bye.